Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, as we continue our exposition of this gospel. It was good to see a full choir up there and to hear from them again this morning, wasn't it? Any of you are welcome to join that choir. We only have an hour of programming now after supper on Wednesday night, so it makes it real easy and really accessible. I'd love to see more of you up there, because judging by what I hear during worship, a lot of you can sing very well and will be a great addition to that ministry. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves." Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted into heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Let us pray together. Father God, this is your eternal word. What a privilege it is for us as your children to be able to hold it in our hands, to read it, Lord, to study it, to drink deeply of its truth. I pray, Lord, once again as we come to this text, that you will give us the desires of our heart, that you will make the desires of our heart to reflect the very desires of Christ's own heart. And in that way, Lord, may we share his passion to lift up his name so that all the world might hear, so that you might draw men and women unto yourself, that they be saved, that you, O God, would be glorified. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, it is no small act of providence that God has brought us to this particular text the Sunday before our missions conference. Next week, we'll have the privilege of having all three of our missions partners here. We will hear from them in a joint Sunday school time, and we will celebrate and be updated and be called to pray again for what He is doing among the nations. 
You know, from the time that I came to be your pastor, almost 16 years ago now, we have always approached the subjects of evangelism and missions and ministry with the prayer that God would use us. With the prayer that God would send us. With a desire that as a church, we would be a seedbed for pastors and missionaries and church planters. And this text is, is a great reminder of that glad task. We want to be a church that's not only praying, but a church that is sending, a church that is going, a church that is engaging people for the glory of Christ, our King. Now we come to Luke chapter 10 this morning, and we know that during the incarnation of Jesus, there were many other disciples beyond just the 12 who followed him, who learned from him during the time of his earthly ministry. As Jesus had now set his gaze toward Jerusalem and the work of redemption that he was going to complete there, he sent these disciples, this wider band of disciples, ahead of him to make one more great evangelistic push in the cities and villages that he himself would visit along the way. He appointed 72 of them to go forth in 36 pairs to proclaim the gospel. And as we study his instructions to them this morning, we are reminded that as those united with Christ, we are by nature a missional people. And as those who are united with Christ, therefore, we are to share his heart for the world. And so we see what I think are three instructions here when we talk about going forth. We are instructed through this passage to go forth praying, to go forth believing, and to go forth warning. And so let's talk about that first point. We are to go forth praying. What does Jesus mean when we get to verse 2 there and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few? Well, in this context, the harvest refers to people's readiness to hear the gospel. Again, Jesus has come. He has inaugurated his kingdom. The work of drawing his people to himself has begun. So we, as his children, as disciples of Christ ourselves, we are conscripted to labor in that perpetual time of harvest, a perpetual time of harvest that lasts until his second coming. And Jesus says here but that this harvest is plentiful. It is abundant. It is so great that the comparative number of workers that will take to bring it in is so much larger than the few who have actually engaged. And so Jesus' point here is that everyone is called to this task. Every single member of his family is called to labor to bring it in. To use that agricultural metaphor, it means all hands to the field. For the harvest master is summoning us. And what is our first duty as we have been summoned to the task? We are to be a people who pray. First and foremost, we're to pray for God to raise up and send out his workers. From the first time Jesus called his first disciples, we see a pattern of called individuals being raised up and sent out as preachers and teachers and missionaries. When we read the, the New Testament, we read verses like Romans 10, 14, and 15. How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
This is why we also go on in the book of Acts and we see numerous examples of God raising up and sending out faithful messengers, such as when Paul and and Barnabas were sent out in Acts chapter 13. And from those passages, we are reminded, we are taught that God is faithful to call. He is faithful to prepare. He is faithful to send his workers into the harvest. And we should therefore depend on him and be serious about pleading with him to send even more. I wonder, brothers and sisters, do we even pray this for our own families? You know, I've shared with you many times before, I I was not raised in a Christian household. And certainly when you look at my young life, no one anticipated Sean Merrithew ever being a preacher of the gospel. I still think if I went back and told my elementary school teachers what I was doing, they would fall over. But how often do we actually commit ourselves and even our, our children to the Lord in this way? How often have you as parents and grandparents prayed specifically for God to use your children, your grandchildren, as instruments in building his kingdom? Have you prayed for for God to do a great work of calling in their lives, to set them apart for the ministry of the gospel? You know, sometimes that can be a hard thing. I I have specifically spoken to some parents before who said, you know, I'm, I'm really nervous to pray that for my child because I don't want my my child and my grandchild to leave to go to Africa where I'll never get to see them just because they're called to missions. But brothers and sisters, is that really the mindset we're to have? Christ has set us free. Christ reminds us that, that, that what this life is truly about are the unseen spiritual realities, not the physical realities that we're so consumed with on a day-to-day basis. Christ reminds us that there is no greater glory that is ours or or no greater glory for our progeny, for our legacy, than that we be able to serve his kingdom, his purpose in this life. Indeed, there is no greater joy for the believer. We pray for God to raise up and send out his workers and brothers and sisters by the grace and for the glory of Christ, we even hold our own family members with a loose hand praying that God would use and take them. Let us never be a roadblock to the call of God on someone else's life. Secondly, as we pray for God to send out workers, we will develop a burden to be workers ourselves. This is another beautiful fruit of this kind of evangelistic prayer. As we pray to and plead with God, the Spirit within us conforms our hearts to His. In prayer, our burdens become God's and God's desires become ours. Did you ever think about that? In prayer, our burdens become God's and God's desires become ours. That's, this is what Psalm 37.4 means when it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's not that God will give you what you want. It is that as you delight in him, as you swim daily and saturate yourself in the truth of Christ and his word, as you develop in your love for him, that he will literally give you new godly desires in your heart. So the reality is that when we pray for God to send preachers and teachers and missionaries and church planners, when we pray for lost people to come to Christ, we even as a result of our praying will experience an ever-deepening burden to labor in the harvest ourselves. 
Our eyes will be open to need and our hearts will be moved with compassion until we are no longer praying, God, Lord, please send someone. Instead, we will be praying, here I am, Lord, send me. Remember what it says in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that would take us to a third thing that I would remind us of under this first point. We must never forget that it is indeed His harvest. God is the redeemer of souls. God is the one who softens and changes hearts. God is the one who does the saving. In evangelism, we are joyfully laboring at His side to bring in the harvest that He has planted, that He has nurtured, that He brings to fruition. The reality is that the reality that it is his harvest should also never foster an apathy toward evangelism in our ranks. On the contrary, because we know God is the one who saves, because we know that, that should foster a great confidence and hope in us. Because we know his harvest will be brought in. He shall accomplish everything according to his perfect plan and purpose. As Jesus said in John 10, 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they shall hear my voice and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. This is the theological reality that even drives our prayer. In evangelism, It's not. We put so much focus on external things. But evangelism is truly not about about formulating persuasive methods, about planning the right event, about inviting just the right evangelist or speaker, about having just the right music or just the right gospel track. Again, evangelism is primarily about looking to the Lord pleading with God for the souls of men, and then in the joy of Christ that is ours, going forth. We are His chosen instruments in proclaiming the gospel. As Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, as He was about to depart His disciples, He says, you are my witnesses. This is our new identity. This is the joy of who we get to be in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have the privilege to be part of a saving work in this world. Now we do want to understand the last thing Jesus says here. It's not going to be easy. We are are lambs sent out into the midst of wolves. We have a world that surrounds us that would seek to devour us, to kill us. We are to be wise and cautious, therefore. Because when it comes down to it, Lambs cannot conquer wolves, but Christ can. Christ is our hope. Christ is our strength. Christ is the king of our hearts. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. And even when we wrestle and struggle with evangelizing, even when we feel guilty for not evangelizing, let us remember that we have a Savior that forgives perfectly, fully, A Savior who will give us the very heart that we lack as we look to Him. And that is why we pray. So that the desires of our hearts will be conformed to Him and His desires for the salvation of men. 
So we are to, to go forth. First of all, we go forth praying. Secondly, we are to go forth believing. As we pick up with cha in chapter 10 at verse 4, Jesus now gives them instructions. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Now, if, if you and I were about to set out on a journey to go to other cities or towns, what would we do? How would we prepare for evangelistic ministry? You know, a year ago about this time, I had the privilege of, of going with a, a couple others from our church to go down and preach the gospel at the Super Bowl as it was going on in Tampa. You know, and I, I prepared beforehand. I prepared some, some brief sermons for street preaching. I, I prepared some presentations of the gospel, made sure we had proper tracks. You know, I, I packed clothing and things that I needed. These disciples would have likewise wanted to make similar preparations. But Jesus wanted this mission to be undertaken with a sense of urgency. And even more, he wanted them to go forth not trusting in themselves or their own preparations, but rather trusting wholly in him. So he told them not to pack anything. They didn't need to take extra money, a knapsack of clothes, an extra pair of sandals. They didn't need it. And as they went, they weren't to be distracted from their mission by greeting and chit-chatting with people on the road along the way. His instructions required the disciples to go forth in faith, keeping their minds and their hearts on the priority of the gospel, trusting God to provide their basic needs, and also to provide what was needed for their families in their absence. When we move to verse 5, we see that they are told to look for people of peace, or specifically a son of peace, in each city or village. A person of peace generally refers to someone of good moral reputation in the community who would welcome them openly and not see them as a threat. Most commentators note that conveying the greeting of peace that Jesus speaks of here was in some way effectual because God's hand comes upon the home that welcomes God's servant. So upon entering a worthy home, the disciples were to convey a blessing of peace. And though their blessing of peace was in some way effectual, it was not automatic. If, it, if they were refused, if the house proved unworthy, unwilling to hear, then their blessing of peace was returned to them. They were to receive it back, for that home was not worthy of their greeting. This was the first step of locating a place to stay. And it was significant because the person or family that hosted them would be the very first to hear the message of Jesus from them. If they were receptive, then the next logical step would be to interact with relatives and friends and neighbors in the same community. And if the receptivity continued, they might eventually gain a hearing in the main gathering of the local synagogue. So going to the right home was important. And once that person of a good reputation was, was located and welcomed them into their home, they were to abide there, eating the food that was set before them without complaint. You see, if the disciples and, and their message happened to be very well received, probably more prominent and affluent people would invite them to then move and stay in their homes in that particular village or town. Some of them as an expression of thankfulness, but others as a means of inflating their own reputation. So Jesus instructed his disciples to turn down those additional invitations to upgrade their living arrangements, not only because it might offend their original host, but it also might lead the people to question whether or not they were material opportunists. So they were to stay and respect the hospitality of their host. And then in verse 9, we see that they were to proclaim the reality of Christ's coming. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. 
As we've seen before, the miraculous healings not only helped people in great need, they served as proof that the good news of the kingdom was indeed of God. Over and over again during the earthly ministry of Jesus, we see his divine power demonstrated in healings and in exorcisms and in commanding the forces of nature. These displays of his power validated his identity as God incarnate. Now as these 72 disciples went out, they too were given the authority to do these same things, to do healings and exorcisms as demonstrations of Christ's power and as validations of the gospel message. This is what Paul referred to as he said in 1 Corinthians 2, beginning of verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God's design through these disciples was that the salvation of men would be brought about by His power. So these 72 disciples were to go forth believing that God would care for their needs through his people. They were to believe and trust that God had people of peace in every city and village who would receive and care for them. And they were to believe that preaching the good news of the kingdom was indeed God's ordained means of drawing his people to himself and building his kingdom. I would have us pause at this point and ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, do we live by the same faith? Do we live like people who believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes? You know, we, and when I say we, I include myself in that. You all know as well as I do that when we come across a difficult situation, we have two tendencies, right? If we have a difficult interpersonal situation, we typically do one of two things. Either we try to fix the person or we write the person off, right? Maybe it's a, it's a very difficult coworker, a coworker who's always green, grumpy and, and always manipulative, perhaps always green with envy, a person who makes our working environment a very difficult place. And we may try to kill them with kindness, right? We may try to fix the situation in our own strength. But pretty soon, we, if that doesn't work, we tend to give up. We tend to write them off. We tend to just try avoidance. Sometimes we can have very difficult interpersonal situations with a, with a child. Wondering, oh God, when will you change the heart of my child? When, when will you help this child be what they're supposed to be? Maybe we could say the same about a spouse. Maybe we could say the same about another family member who perhaps has been particularly irksome to us. Brothers and sisters, be reminded, know even again as the truth of this text that it is God who truly changes the hearts of men. You and I may have the ability to affect their behavior to a certain extent, but you and I will never be able to change someone's heart. And remember this as well when you're tempted to write someone off. How many people wrote off Paul early in the book of Acts? I mean, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a persecutor of the church. 
The coats of, of those who stoned Stephen were laid at his feet. How many people might have been tempted to look at Paul and say, Phew, he's a servant of the darkness. The Lord's going to cause him to burn in hell. And yet God showed that not even a wretched persecutor of the church like Saul was beyond his reach. No one is beyond God's reach, brothers and sisters. And at the end of the day, if you need proof of that, just look in the mirror. If you are here today as a child of God, you are living proof. You are your own proof that no one is beyond the reach of God. You know, our tendency again is to think of other people and how wicked they are and what, what, what murderous people they are and what manipulative, abusive people they are, all the while not recognizing that about ourselves. That are in our own hearts, we are just as murderous. In our own hearts, we are just as manipulative. In our own hearts, we are just as selfish. In our own hearts, we would have been just as pleased to go on living our lives for ourselves rather than living for the one who made us and who has redeemed us by his blood. Did Christ write us off? Did Christ wash his hands of us? No. Christ saved us. He drew us to himself and in the glories of all that He'd accomplished for us, He gave us the gift of righteousness that we could never attain on, to on our own. Jesus Christ did everything necessary to reconcile us to a holy God. That is power of the Gospel. And I think one of the reasons we perhaps struggle with evangelism, brothers and sisters, is that we fail to remember Christ's ability to conquer sin and darkness and draw men and women to Himself. Somehow we doubt it. Or somehow we think He could use someone else in a more powerful way. Remember, God has chosen the weak and foolish things of this world to, to, to shame the wise. That means you're a perfect candidate to be His instrument. So am I. We are to go forth believing knowing that Christ in the Gospel is a master of changing, reconciling, restoring, transforming darkness into light, all for the glory of His name. And that takes me to the final thing we see in this text. We're to go forth praying. We're to go forth believing. Finally, we're to go forth warning Jesus also told His disciples, beginning in verse 10, what to do when they were rejected. Through their ministry, the disciples would learn that the message of the kingdom was a divisive one and that people would often be opposed to it, sometimes violently opposed. This reality was to be expected when you confront men with the reality of their sin and their need for a Savior. Well, when the disciples left a home or town where their message was rejected, they were to shake their the dust off their feet in a very visible manner. And this was actually a very common practice among pious Jews whenever they left Gentile territories to return to Israel. They would stop at the border, at the edge of the territory, and they would shake all the dust out of their clothing and off of their shoes, thus disassociating themselves from the pollution of those pagan lands and the judgment of God that was in store for them. That's what it represented. So for the disciples to do this to Jewish homes and to Jewish towns and in Jewish cities 
was the equivalent of them saying to those villages and towns and cities, you are among the Gentiles. You are under the judgment of God. And seeing such an act performed against them would have been an incredible insult to all of those Jews. But really being insulted was the least of their worries. Jesus says so here. You, you remember Sodom and Gomorrah, right? They were twin cities known for their exceeding sinfulness and sexual debauchery. In Genesis 19, we see God destroy these two ancient cities with fire and brimstone rain down from heaven. Therefore, to have your home or town compared to such places was to be counted among the most wicked men that ever lived. That's what Jesus says. Jesus then went on to pronounce judgment. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Chorazin was a village about two and a half miles northwest of Capernaum. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Bethsaida was a town on the west side of Galilee. It was the original home of Andrew, Peter, and Philip. These were towns where Jesus would have ministered, where he would have taught, where he would have performed miracles. Then he also mentions Tyr and Sidon. Tyr and Sidon were large Phoenician cities located on the Mediterranean Sea. They were seaport cities known for their excessive immorality and pagan idolatry and Baal worship. As evil as these two pagan cities were, the judgment they would suffer would be nothing compared to the judgment that was coming upon Chorazin and Bethsaida. You see, Christ had sovereign knowledge of all possibilities. Christ knows that he knew that even if he had performed the same signs that he did in Chorazin and Bethsaida in Tyr and Sidon, that they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And so Chorazin and Bethsaida, being Jewish cities, having synagogues, knowing the word of God, having rejected the Christ, they would be under an even more severe judgment. In verse 15, Jesus then singles out Capernaum. Now we have a lot more information on Capernaum. This was Jesus' northern base of operations. He preached more sermons and performed more miracles in and around Capernaum than any other place in his entire ministry. He stayed in Peter's home whenever he was in that region. It was just outside of Capernaum that he delivered the Sermon on the Mount. It was in Capernaum that he healed the centurion's servant, that he cured Peter's mother-in-law, that he cast out demons, healed lepers, made a paralytic walk, raised a dead girl to life, gave sight to two blind men, and so much more. I have been to Capernaum. I have stood in the original synagogue that was built there in the city of Capernaum. We did this in a trip to Israel several years ago. It was a large synagogue given the time period. But by and large, the population of Capernaum proved indifferent to the Messiah in their midst. Thus, Jesus promised, you know, they thought, Capernaum, we are going to be exalted into the heavens. Jesus promises them that they're not going to be exalted in the heavens. On the contrary, they were going to descend into Hades, into hell. You see, instead of hearing and repenting and following Jesus, the Galileans in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, they were blinded by their own traditions and their own self-righteousness. It is not that they mounted any great resistance to Christ, but that even though they knew the Scriptures, they were largely indifferent to the Messiah when He came. You know, J.C. Ryle had an excellent quote here. J.C. Ryle said, Men are apt to forget that it does not require great open sins to be sinned in order to ruin a soul forever. They have only to go on hearing without believing, listening without repenting, 
going to church without going to Christ. And by and by, they will find themselves in hell. Brothers and sisters, this is a hard truth. Judgment is coming. The reaper, Christ Himself, is coming. Judgment stands at the door. And we need to warn people of this fact. I know the world doesn't want to hear it. The world doesn't want to hear Bible-believing Christians telling them that there is a danger of hellfire, that there is a danger of God's judgment. But that too is an integral part of the Gospel. That is the final place for all those who would reject Jesus. And we need to understand that all of that rests in God's hand. Sometimes people get into this this frame of mind where they think that God somehow owes them mercy. Men and women think, you know, I've lived a good life. I've done my best, you know. I, I was faithfully married. I took care of my children. I was a decent moral person. God owes me mercy. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't owe salvation to anyone. James Montgomery Boyce said, Although the people of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom would have repented and been saved if Jesus had done the miracles in those cities that he did in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, he did not do them. And the people perished justly for their sins. We think God owes us mercy. But if mercy were owed, it would not be mercy. The only thing God actually owes us is justice. And we will get justice if we do not commit our lives to Christ. God is merciful to many, but God owes mercy to no one. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, it is that truth that should be part of humbling us and breaking us. It should be that truth that I think would give us even more compassion for the sinners around us. I remember several years ago at a Ligonier conference, you know, the doctrine of hell has constantly been under attack in the world. And at a Ligonier conference, that's R.C. Sproul's ministry, they, I forget who the speaker was, he had just got up and given a very incredible and rousing defense of the doctrine of eternal judgment and the doctrine of hell. And again, because that was a doctrine that was under attack, those who were, the, the couple thousand people that were at that conference responded, yes, this is the truth, and they applauded as that speaker finished his message. Well, it just so happened, the next speaker up got up before those men and women and said, no one should ever applaud the truth of hell. We should teach it. We should preach it. It is a clear and true doctrine of the Bible which we should warn men and women about, but make no mistake, we should never applaud the idea of hell. For everlasting torment separated from the goodness of God, being in a place for all eternity where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, is a truth that should cause us to grieve. Brothers and sisters, may we thank Christ. 
May we rejoice in Christ because it is our Savior who has spared us from that judgment. We too were nothing but sinners who deserved only God's justice, but He has shown us mercy in Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is not a sense of guilt that should ever move us to evangelism. No, it is joy over that mercy that should move us to proclaim Him. It is love for Christ our Savior that should lead us to to speak of Him warmly to all that we know. It is confidence in His ability to conquer, to change, to forgive, to restore. It is our confidence in Him that even leads us to pray boldly, Lord, send men and women to serve the sake of the gospel around the globe. Lord, send me. It is the glory and joy of Christ that moves us, brothers and sisters. So let us go forth praying. Let us go forth believing. Let us go forth warning men and women, knowing that Christ is King, that Christ is coming. Let us pray. Lord, you are so good to us. Lord, our heart's desire is just that you would take this word and continue, Father God, to draw us nearer to you, to equip us, Lord, to prepare us, to grant us a holy boldness that we may proclaim Christ. For by your grace, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, those who have been commissioned to call people out of the darkness and into the light. So let us be found, Father God, loving you, obeying you, until we go home to be with you or until you return to carry us home to be with you. Thank you for saving us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.